Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your son and we can cling to him. Nothing good in us, Lord, to cling to. We, we come with empty hands. Uh, our works are just filthy rags. And so uh, you have caused your son to take your wrath on our, in our place. He has satisfied your anger. You are completely satisfied and happy with us. And so we cling to him. What a great song. A great truth to be reminded of this day, Lord. And as our world frets and fears and worries and politicizes everything, we cling to Christ. He is our hope. He is all that we have. And it is enough. So Lord, strengthen us for this. Thank you for this passage in Exodus 10. Bless us tonight as we learn more about you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep a finger in Exodus chapter 10, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I want to start with this. You'll notice the title of my sermon is The Calamity Creating God. The Calamity Creating God. And people go, oh, is that a good description of God? Well, he gives it to himself, so let me read the verse. (laughs) And remember, he makes no mistakes. He's perfect in all that he does. So this calamity-creating God is about to act, and he's bringing hoppers, grasshoppers, locusts, and he's bringing darkness to show his power. It's amazing what he chooses to do. Look at this verse with me, Isaiah 45, 7. I want you to grasp this. We're going to come back to this. Look at what it says in the first couple of phrases here. The one forming light... We know that, right? Genesis chapter one, he said, let there be light. So he creates light out of nothing. That's pretty astounding. But look at the next phrase. And creating darkness. That's, that's mind boggling. And we're gonna see him, we're gonna see him do that in our text. And then the rest of it says, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. The world has a lot of problems with God, don't they? They have a tremendous problems with the God of the Bible. They cannot get their mind around that God would do these things to present himself glorious. Well, make your way back to Exodus 10 as I catch us up and give us an introduction to understand what's happening here. This beautiful land of, of Egypt where Joseph secured a place for his family is now devastated. The fish population is is down. The early crops are destroyed by hail. Grain supply is dwindling. That means that means flour and dough and bread, right? Livestock are seriously depleted if any left with the Egyptians. And the immediate outlook of the land and its people is grim. And he's not done yet. The last of the remaining crops, think about this, are soon to be eaten by bugs, hoppers, swarms of locusts. But Pharaoh will not repent. He will not repent and he will not concede his really what the idea of the world, he would not concede to the Lord's demands. And so he will bring his family and his people to the brink of desolation because of this hard heart. 
And this brings us to the pride and, that he has and trying, he's trying in a way to preserve his own dignity and his own authority over his own land and he's losing control of that plague by plague. It's slipping from him. And so that leads me into my first thought tonight. Number one, God's ultimate power in Pharaoh's deadly pride. Look at verses one and two with me as we start working our way through this text. Verse 10, I mean, chapter 10, verse one and two. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, ser- servants, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and of your grandsons how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. Well, for the eighth time, Moses is about to present himself before this hard-hearted Pharaoh. And after refusing to obey the living God and the hardening of his heart towards a living God, Pharaoh is left with no alternative. He's rejected the living God. I don't know this God. I don't want to know this God. I'm God here And God increasingly hardens that heart because of sin. And now he has no alternative. He's left in this rock-hard, lifeless heart. So Pharaoh's sinfulness of rejecting God is is not just cause, cause for the hardening of his own heart, but now you'll notice that it continues to affect those around him. We talked about this before. When we don't repent of sin, I promise you it'll affect people around you. Particularly leaders. Particularly men, fathers, husbands. It affects those around. So now we see God's judicial sentence on Pharaoh and his his officials. You can see it coming. Now this obstinate attitude that Pharaoh has here, it excludes him from understanding what God is doing. He's, he's not understanding the signs that are coming or he would quit, right? So this hard heart gives you confusion. It, it, it helps you, it, it causes you not to understand what God's doing. There's often when we talk to people who are in habitual sin and we'll state clearly what the Bible says and they won't get it. They're just gonna get it. Because it hardens the heart. It, it causes you not to understand who God is and what he's doing. And so Egypt's caught in this very difficult judgment because of this hard-hearted ruler. Now, Pharaoh, who claimed not to know God, the God of the Hebrews, would now be left with little doubt of who he is. He, he is certainly knows who the God of Hebrews is and, and speaks of him often. Now, one of the purposes of the signs that the Lord performed were to provide uh, the content, you could say it this way, the content of the message that was to be given to the next generation. Did you notice that in the verse? Verse two, you are to tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons. So the purpose of these signs, one of them, not only to show that there is no God, there's no other God, there's none like him, But here in this text, it tells us the purpose is that this message is to be given to the next generation. So these signs from God were to be proclaimed in response to praise and gratitude. God wanted his children, think about this, he wants his children to be unable to keep quiet about the God who brought their people out of Israel. (laughs) I love that. 
And you see it all through the Bible, right? Uh, we're going to get into Deuteronomy and some of the sermons of, of Moses later as we keep working our way through the Pentateuch. And you'll see time and time again in the book of Deuteronomy where he refers to this as a point of praise. The psalmists have a ball with it. Psalm 78, 77, 70, 78, 105, uh, 135, 136. All speak about this, these plagues as a praise of God's might and power. So this was one of the reasons for this. And you can see him write this. Notice in the verse that in both verse 1 and 2, God reminds us that these signs belong to what? They're my signs and they belong to me, right? You see that? You should mark that in your Bible. Notice the end of verse 10. Perform these signs of mine among them. The last part of verse 2. Perform my signs among them. Now certainly Moses was a faithful servant of God. But these were not his doing. (laughs) Right? And when we watch Pharaoh react, interact. And particularly his officials in this case here. They kind of think Moses is the problem. Moses is not your problem. Your problem is much bigger than that. It's God. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Now, God, through Moses, states Pharaoh's problem of pride, doesn't he here? You refuse to humble yourself. This is your problem. I've proved myself over and over that I'm greater than you, I'm greater than all your gods, but you, will, you refuse to humble yourself. And so Pharaoh was so convinced that he had ultimate power, ultimate say over the nation of Egypt, and he would not relent. And God calls this a refusal Rebellion to humble yourself. It's quite a statement. Rebellion is the most, in in moms and dads in here who have children, we have to deal with rebellion. There's a difference between being childish and and being little and being a three-year-old or a five-year-old or 17-year-old or whatever. Everybody, there's childness in some of those things. Rebellion is deadly. And God sets himself against rebellion. And we're going to see this Sunday in, in Mark chapter 13. In that great Olivet Discourse, you're going to see that God always judges rebellion. And I'm going to prove to you from the Old Testament through the New Testament, he will bring rebellion. I mean, he will bring, he will bring destruction upon rebellion. And I think that's what he's doing here. So this type of pride is destructive and deadly. And, and I would just... Um, I would just ask all of us, is there an area in our life where we kind of want to dig our heels in? And we say that as Christians because that's the polite way of saying not rebelling. And trying to be kind. Where have you dug your heels in against what God wants you to do? That's rebellion for a Christian. And I, and I, and I, I think it's important because you see him over and over deal with this type of attitude. Now, notice in verse 4, the verse tells us that Pharaoh was again warned that his obstinate course would result in further divine punishment. I'm going to send these locusts on you. But, but be clear, just to finish this point, these are not Moses' signs, they're God's signs and God's wonder. And it's a vivid, powerful display of what he does. Now, 
Two, the blinding effects of sin even when life is collapsing. The blinding effects of sin even when life is collapsing because it is collapsing around Pharaoh. This time the punishment would come in the form of, of locusts, grasshoppers. We call them hoppers back home. It's one of the farming community and government's biggest fear in particularly today's world of third world farming. They are tremendously afraid of this. Have you heard what's going on in East Africa? You got some pictures for me? Are they up? Okay, this little guy, go back to that little guy. Hang on. This little guy is in East Africa right now. By the billions. And he's eating his weight every day in something green. Next one. This was, on, this was just posted yesterday. Um, this is one of a bunch of pictures that was on there. Asked Troy to kind of stick those up there. Now, I think that picture may give you a little bit of semblance, but it falls very short than what we're going to see what the Bible describes. There's nothing left when they get done. So that kind of gives you an, a little bit of a visual that it's happening today. And so there was the God of the Egyptians, his name was Seth. No relation to Shelies. Um, he was the God of storms and disorder. He was supposed to guard from wind and storm damage and was particularly a protector of the crops. Uh, he was supposed to work with Newt, which was a goddess of the sky, uh, but apparently they were gone during this time. When you look at this word in, in, in the Hebrew, there's, there's several words in the Hebrew for locusts, but this particular word speaks of locusts in immense numbers. It, it puts it in a context that they're uncountable. Because you have to understand, locusts were common, as, they, as we even see today, hitting in East Africa. They were common in that, that region, and they were common at that time of the year. And what would happen is the sands would warm up, the sun would start to warm up. It was now moving towards that end of February, March, April, as we're getting towards what's going to be Passover. That sun's starting to get higher. The, sands, the warm sands heat up, and that was where the locusts laid their eggs, in that warm sand. They would hatch, then a good east wind would blow them from the desert into the fields of Egypt. And these little hordes of um, immature but growing locusts would voraciously eat up everything inside. Now, the locust that is found in Egypt today weighs about two gram, grams, so he's not big. The, the ones in Africa are a little bigger, but they, they eat their body weight, right, every day. They, they recorded one swarm that's, I think, the biggest swarm they've ever recorded uh, was over several square miles and they, 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 they couldn't come up with a figure, but it was in the billions <laughs> that were in it. And still they did not cover the face of the ground. You could still step and not step on them. That's not the case here in our text. Look with me at five and six. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped what is left to you from the hail. They will eat every tree which sprouts, sprouts uh, for you out of the field. 
Then your houses shall be filled, and your houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out, of, and went out from Pharaoh. Now, this is not just some natural occurrence that we're seeing in East Africa today. This is a God-ordained swarm that is unparalleled with, with a magnitude that, to it that's beyond comparison. Um, Moses said that they will cover the face of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. That's a carpet. That, that's on everything. This is a moving landscape that blocks the, the earth, right? So this divine imposed judgment was overwhelming, to, uh, at least to state that, right? And after stating the destructive facts that, that no one has ever seen anything like it, I like Moses' exit. It's kind of a mic drop, isn't it? He turns and walks out of the presence of, the, of Pharaoh. And it's all because of this hard-hearted pride. He's not going to move. So he says, Here's what's coming. Bye. And he walks out. Notice verse 7. Pharaoh's servants, they, they now speak up, said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Well, I, I believe this verse conveys a clear response of dread. Not only what took place, it is the fear of something that's coming next that are upon these men. And I think the seven previous plagues have, have taken their toll on Pharaoh's officials. Notice their concern with Moses, not God. They, they are, quit, they are, um, they are uh, lining this up with Moses, not God. They said, how long will this man be a snare? It's an interesting word. It's like a trap, right? You've seen a, a, a wire, hair, you know, we call it a hair, a hair snare. Um, they're made of wire and they're very little. And they're very, they're not like a bear trap and they're, they're just a wire. But they're deadly <laughs> if you get caught in them. And, and that's what they're saying. This little man, this little man is a problem to us. <laughs> he's a snare to us. He's, 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 he's deadly to us. They themselves do not see the power of the Almighty God. Remember, these officials were polytheistic. To them, it was not a big deal to let these people go. Let them go worship their God. He's just a God like all the other gods. The destruction of Egypt is more important, and they're trying to awaken Pharaoh, whose heart is hard, right? So these men are looking for a way out of this difficult situation. In essence, notice they say, what's next going to happen? You realize what's happening here. But what's fascinating is their, their answer to the difficult situation is, is, well, let the men go. Just let the men go. You notice that? Verse 7, in, into um, how long will this man go? And, and um, so, so Aaron's brought back in and, and the, the whole idea here is, is Pharaoh begins to say, well, we're going to let your men go. And this, this is actually probably coming from, from these guys that are the officials that are there to work with him. Now, look at verse 8 with me. 
So Moses and Aaron were brought back in, and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. And he asked the question, who are the ones going? The the servants, the officials said, let the men go. But here now Pharaoh wants to question Moses, who's going with you? There seems to be this at first, look at verse 8, when he's, it's kind of an, a, a grant of unconditional permission. Okay, okay, we, we've had enough. Don't do this. Don't, don't bring these locusts. Go and serve the Lord your God. That's a great statement. Looks like we're getting somewhere. But then he says, who are the ones that are going? So he quickly, he quickly qualifies his consent with another question. And it seems like Moses knows what he's doing. Look at verse 9. Moses says, we shall go with our young and our old. He knows exactly where he's going. With our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And I love this. Moses says no compromise, right? There's no compromise with Moses. No concession to try to free God's people. Well, you know, maybe we should give in a little bit. You know, we're never getting anything done if we don't have compromise in the leadership. We hear that all the time. Moses would not have been a good senator. This is the way God said it. This is the way we're going to do it. I love that about Moses. So Moses knew that everything the Israelites had, think about this. What he's saying here is Moses knows that everything that the Israelites have belonged to God. Their children, their livestock, their wives, their husbands, all belongs to God and are all part of the act of worshiping God. They're all part of what we do. We worship the God, our God with everything. We worship him with our families. We worship him with our belongings. We take everything with us. And notice Moses' words leave no doubt that this is a complete departure from Egypt. Complete. We take it all with us. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you. This is now Pharaoh speaking. And let me read this a little different. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so, Pharaoh says here. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. And so they were driven, Moses and Aaron, out of Pharaoh's presence. Now this verse um, shows Pharaoh's response to Moses, and it shows this very prideful response. It is actually a threat to Moses and in the nation. Notice Pharaoh is saying, you will, you, you, you will need your Lord. I think this is what he's saying this is my words. You will need the Lord to protect you if I decide to let you go. This is blatant. Shake a fist in God's face after all that's taken place. And notice that the true, that the true evil one is now calling, in a sense, Moses and, and the people of God evil. That, that's what happens. Evil, he says, notice he says, evil is in your mind. So, he, so here the evil one who is holding them slavery has abused them, has, has put his nation through un, unbelievable suffering because of his hard heart. Now he's calling Moses the evil one. It's exactly what Romans 1 says. In the end, those who do evil will call the people who do good evil. That's the way the word works. Now, remember, Pharaoh still has a military. 
Don't forget that. And it's the world's powerfulest military. He still has that at his disposal. And I think these verses are a threat, not an agreement. And I think Pharaoh is using these words to possibly bring fear to Moses, but he doesn't know what he's dealing with. There is a possibility he could be talking as well to his officials who are trying to get him to consent. He may be turning to them and saying these words. There's evil in you. If you're not going to stand with me, we're not letting these people go. So I'm not quite sure if he's not talking to both of them. Now, Pharaoh's negotiation is to to let the men go, right? You see that. Take the men and go, he says. Because obviously, what would happen, right? You leave honey and the little crumb crunchers behind, you're coming back. You got your flocks and your belongings and all your possessions, you're gonna come back. So effectively, what is he doing? He's holding, he's holding mom and children as hostages, isn't he? This is not even close to consenting to what God has. <laughs> So clearly Pharaoh is not broken, but he's still trying to exercise his will over God. One last thought on this, these verses here before I leave. Worst case scenario, the men flee Israel and he gains everything they have. All their livestock, remember he's hurting for livestock, they've lost it all. He gets all their women, he gets all their children, he gets all their belongings, he gets the land of Goshen back, he gets all that back. Um, but I don't think that's his plan. So Pharaoh is, in his distorted mind, believes that he has the upper hand still. It's hard to believe. He really believes he still has the upper hand, and this is what unrepentant hearts do. Third thought, and be humorous with me. God is hopping mad at the sin of rebellion. God is hopping mad at sin of rebellion. I like grasshoppers. I grew up fishing. And when we didn't have any money to buy bait, we would run through the field and grab grasshoppers. And I grew up in a world of trout fishing, cold water streams and lakes. And boy, you could catch trout with a grasshopper. So I like them. I didn't like this many. Look at 12 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all, of, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land, and all that day and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought locusts. The locusts came up over all of the land of Egypt and settled in all of the territory of Egypt, and they were very numerous. There, uh, there, had been, there had never been so many locusts, nor there will be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on the tree or the plant of the field throughout all of the land of Egypt." Well, you can see the scene that happens. God causes this east wind to blow for looks like somewhere along 24 hours and this unprecedented swarm of locusts that God creates and brings in comes blowing in from these warm sands of the desert and they come in and they're so thick they darken what seems to be darkens the land if not darkens the sky. 
that's, that's just the, that's wording to the density of what God did, how much he brought. It was nothing like what East Africa seen it, although we hurt for those people over there and it is bad when these things happen, but this is, there's nothing, there's nothing equal to what God did here. So, so the idea of the language here is that you cannot put your foot down without stepping on it, right? So the surface is down, so you can't take a step without going squish. That, that's how thick it was, no matter what there are. And you know, you know hoppers, they have those little, on their legs, they have those little things that hang back, and if they get in your hair, they're hard to get out because those things just grab, and you can just imagine these things everywhere. You thought the flies were bad. Now you got a two-inch bug in your mouth and ears and on your hair and in your bed and on your ovens and everywhere. These things have gone crazy. Nothing said about the land of Goshen in this particular passage, um, but it seems that God is on a, uh, a protecting, he's been protecting his people, so I would suggest that they were exempt from this plague as well as the other eight. However, in Egypt, it was a total devastation. Notice, they, nothing green was left. I mean, that's, he turned it into a desert. And, and we're talking, you know, the Nile flows north. And so, as it comes down, it fans out, and it is some of the most fertile ground in the world still to this day. So, I mean, I think you may think of Egypt and seeing pyramids and the Sphinx and those type of things. You see that stuff, and it looks really brown and stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about where they feed their nation from. There's nothing left. See, this is the power of God. Psalms 105, 34 through 35, listen to this phrase. He spoke, and the locust came. See, a lot of people say, well, it was a... You know, we have history that they would, locusts would, they would multiply and then great, they had, this has happened before, this is maybe just one of the, the more worst events and so forth. I love this verse. <laughs> Psalms 105, verse 34. He spoke and the locust came. See, there's no debate. This wasn't some natural, well, we'll just give them a little breeze and help them get there. God created he spoke and they came. The young locusts, even without number, the verse says. As the psalmist reaccounts, so that the next generation would praise God for what he had done. Look at verse 16 and 17. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called Moses and Aaron, of course, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. And make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. What a statement here. It's interesting, Pharaoh does acknowledge his sin, but notice he does not say precisely what his sin is. He does not call sin, sin in the fact that he describes it. He does not say that I am fighting the Lord God for authority of this earth. The language of the text implies that Pharaoh admits his behavior is less than proper and he shouldn't have driven, and I think this is what it's tied to, he should not have driven Moses and Aaron out of his presence because they're elder and that was wrong. Most theologians believe that's what he's confessing to. He is not repenting. There is no clear confession. There is no clear repentance before God. 
So it is merely a dire nature of the circumstances that he's involved in that are compelling him to acknowledge some kind of wrong. And it's not an easy wrong. I mean, he's, he said, look, get this death off of me. This plague is killing Egypt. Please get it off me. And you know this, brothers and sisters, probably we have been there, and you may know people that are there that will confess sins because they're paying for consequences of it. But they're not repenting. Remember, confession stops the train from going into the Grand Canyon for a while. Repentance turns the train around and sends it back where it should have been. He's feeling the weight of his rebellion of God, and he wants it off of him. However, I do believe that Pharaoh is shaken by this. He's using terms he has not used. You know, forgive my sins. Get this death off of me. I, I think he's at least shaken. And I and many of our pastors, and maybe you have too, we've had people who have come in and repented of their sins, and you can clearly tell they're shaken, but the question is, are they repentful? Do they see that their sin and their act was against Almighty God and that's what put Jesus on the cross and do they recognize the depth of that sin? I think his words here are probably less prideful than they have been as he requests forgiveness. That's new. He's asking for intercession on his behalf. It all looks good for this deadly plague. Those are his words. But clearly, he's connected the deadly results of the plague with his sinful behavior and he's trying to get out from under these consequences of his sin. But he will, listen, the question here that we ask is, but will he abandon his stubbornness and prideful arrogance and recognize the Lord fully? Look at verse 18. And he went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. Well, here's Moses, just the opposite. Look at just the opposite. We're not told of any further conversation or details. Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence and he prays. It's the difference of someone who knows God and goes to him directly and prays and to one who demands of things. Look at verse 19. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And look at this phrase. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. So the Lord again responds to the prayers of his servant, Moses. He just responds to it. And so the Lord causes these, this new wind, a west wind, he reverses the wind. I don't know what Seth was doing, but God takes care of the wind and blows them back out by his graciousness and blows them into the sea. The fishing probably was terrible for a little while. The fish were all full. So these locusts die in the sea. And truly, this is just a miraculous work of God. And the text says that not one locust remained in the territory. Uh, Think about that. That's absolutely complete control. People talk about miracles and churches and doing all this stuff. and You can't match God. And so often they talk about some miracle and you just have to ask them a few questions. Well, did the guy actually get out of the grave? Did you see him, or did you just hear about that story over in Africa? I mean, God does everything, right? He said, oh yeah, I can get rid of the locusts, and not one of them. Billions and billions of these bugs, and not one of them's left. 
I mean, how, how would you go about exterminating these guys and hope that you got every one of them? This is complete control of God. Look at verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what he does, I'm going to keep proving to my people who I am. I'm going to prove to him and to everybody. I'm going to harden his heart. And he did not let the sons of Israel go. Unfortunately, the removal of the locust did not end the story. And I say unfortunately because Pharaoh's people were suffering too. And look, they're not exempt from the wickedness they were involved with, but Pharaoh's sin is falling on them. And Pharaoh's heart, it's the, remember we've been talking about several different Hebrew words of hardening. One is made heavy, and this one is made strong. It is the, I'm gonna not do it. He hardened his heart against God. Fourth, utter darkness as a prelude to the wages of sin. Utter darkness. This is a shorter account of the plagues, but such an important one. Verse 21 through 29 records now this ninth plague. When the Egyptians woke up every morning, they went outside, this was their routine, and they worshiped the sun god, Re, or Ra. They worshiped him because he had victory every day over the forces of darkness. Can you see what's going on? Sun comes up, that's, that's Ra. You beat darkness again, we worship you. They did it every morning. That's often why Moses would meet Pharaoh down by the river. He's worshiping his gods, and one of them would certainly would have been Ra. So the ninth plague begins with the threatening darkness that would grip and just paralyze Egypt. And though darkness does not necessarily bring death, I think it's a forerunner. I think God, well, I know God had these plagues lined up. I think this is the forerunner to what's coming. And to the Egyptians, night represented evil. Dark represented evil. They were actually very afraid of the dark. Once sun go down, they would go to sleep. Sun comes up, they would get up. Much of the world still operates that way. And they would praise Ra every day the same sun came up. Now, light and life go hand in hand, don't they? You have the sun, you have life. When darkness prevails, you have death. So this plague seems to, to have a note of finality to it. There's death is coming. Now I want to think about this darkness for just a moment. Genesis 1-2 tells us that darkness was over the surface of the deep. So you remember in creation, right? God In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. It's a, it's a word used often in the Hebrew. Um, but it's an interesting word. And it seems, I want you to think about this, it seems for a short time God reverses his divine decree to bring judgment by returning to a pre-creation state. So for a brief time, he returns this territory to the darkness that laid on the earth before creation, before there was a sun. It's the same words. We we find the same exact word used in Genesis 1.22 that's used here. And then that brings us back to what we looked at in Isaiah 45.7. I am the one forming light. And then what? And creating light. I have never seen that before until I studied this passage. 
I thought, he brought them back to a pre-creation state and put that darkness on them. This wasn't just, hey, the lights go down in the city. (laughs) This is a darkness that can be felt. Look at verse 21 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. Doubtlessly, the staff is in the hand of Moses. It says he stretched out his hand, but that old staff, boy, people did not like it when he raised that thing. And this is amazing. God, for the short time, was taking away his blessing that he bestowed on the earth in this particular area that the sun would shine on it. Where's Ra now? Because this eerie darkness just spread across the land of Egypt. And, and this is no ordinary darkness. The Hebrew language has an intensity to it and in the, in the English we try our hardest to express it that you could feel it. You could feel it. This darkness causes you to grope through it. <laughs> it, it you can feel it. Uh, uh, years ago, um, I think I was telling Josh's story. I might have told this before. We were working with um, juvenile hall kids, and my partner and I, we took them down into a cave. We were <laughs> way down into a cave, and of course, we didn't give them the lights. We kept them ourselves. Um, these were gangbangers, shot a lot of people. They thought they were the toughest people on the planet. And we got deep into a cave, and Jim and I, tur- my partner, Jim and I, we had a plan to turn out the lights when we got into this one little cavern. And it was, you know, probably the size of my office or so. Um, and as lights went out, and those boys that thought they were pretty tough started screaming. You have never seen that kind of blackness. It, it, it's just like the Bible calls the black of blackness. And these tough guys were clinging to us. Please, please, they would beg. And we just said, I said, Jim, just keep it off for an ordinate amount of time. <laughs> let, let them feel this for a little bit. And then let's share the gospel with them. And they would beg us. They pleaded with us to turn those lights back on. And eventually we did. And right there in the, down in a cave, we shared the gospel with those young men one of which came to the Lord later on that year, and then one, one was in that cave. I think I told you a story. He called me this last year and told me about how God saved him. This is a dark. I mean, I, 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 I didn't think I understood darkness until I, till I studied this. And I think the only way we, we can understand it is get somewhere where all you can do is feel your way around. I think it's almost impossible to explain in natural terms what happened here. Uh, there's people, that, again, there's all these liberals, they try to somehow explain away the power of God and they talk about an eclipse. Have you ever seen an eclipse for three days? And what happens if there was one for three days? <laughs> we got a huge problem with the moon and the sun and gravity and <laughs> tidal waves. and I mean, everything's gonna happen, Right? This is the incredible power of God to on this certain part of the earth reverse his creation in a sense, create darkness instead of lightness, remove that gift that he gave to the earth for three long miserable days to prove that he alone was to be worshiped. Look at verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. 
Now Moses, he obeys just like God tells him. This is the ninth plague. Remember, this, the, they come in threes in, the, in that third one in each set. There's no warning, so there's, there's just no line, warning, and the lights go out. So remember, he's, Pharaoh sinned against God, and, and you know, he's brought him in, and then he, then he hardens his heart. No, they're not going to go, and, don't wanna, you know, and they're out of the presence. And the next thing he knows, the next thing he knows the locusts are leaving, and then the lights go out. Somewhere, and sometime, they go out, and, and it just goes black. And so, when we study this word, this, um, it's the ordinary Hebrew word for darkness, here is combined with another word that, that is always accompanies judgment. And you find it around the terms or the phrases when we study the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes and final judgment happens. Um, we see it, Joel chapter two, verse two uses the same language. In the day of darkness and gloom, that's how he calls it, the same word for thick here, gloom. So that, that helped me understand it a little more. This was gloomy darkness. <laughs> darkness that, that had gloom to it. So this is recorded to bring out the impact of the kind of judgment God can bring on the land. And for three days, God judged Egypt in a way that completely dominates them and demonstrates his power. What are you going to do? How do you fight it? I mean, the locusts, you're at least trying to kill things and sweep them. What do you do with darkness? Well, well, they didn't do anything. Look at verse 23. They did not see one another. We go, don't they have candles? I don't know. The Bible just says they didn't see one another. Who's going to plan for three days of darkness? And if you go to bed when the sun comes down and you get up after it's down, you, you may not have a lot of candle or any kind of oil around to, for that long. So the Bible says they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling. Now, the whole society is froze. I mean, everything stops. Bread making, uh, supplies, uh, sanitation. Everything has come to a full stop now, proving that God has all in control. Think about sleeping problems. Sleep cycles are shot. When do you go to sleep and when do you wake up? Um, Nothing's happening. And, and, and then think a little farther. I had never thought about this. What happens when the sun is not shining? It gets cold. Did you ever think about frost because of this? Let me read you a verse and let you think just a little bit. Psalms 105, same context, same passage. He sent darkness and made it dark. Psalm 78, talking about the same themes going down. And, and this is interesting, and I'm not sure quite what to do with this. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. Now, Gina and I talked about this a little bit today. She says, well, what, wouldn't it be cold with hail? No. <laughs> not in warm climates. We have hailstorms here, right? Anybody seen real heavy? I, I don't, I, this is just my comment. You turn the sun out for three days, your temperatures are plummeting. God warms the crust of our earth with the sun. When the sun is lost, ground freezes. 
You just go to Alaska. <laughs> go places where there is no sun. It, it gets cold. So, so you say, well, why didn't they move around? Well, I think maybe one of the answers may be it's so dark you can't. Number two, you're cold. And you're an Egyptian living in, in a tropical climate all your life. You're not used to going to Michigan in the winter or wherever. And all of a sudden, that cold, because the Lord has not let the sun shine on you. Is that possible? I never thought about that. I just thought darkness. I didn't really understand until I started looking at this. Now, darkness and cold made activities impossible, but notice that it says something about the land of Goshen. Goshen was completely exempt for the Lord. For, um, from the Lord's judgment through darkness. It says light in their dwellings is emphasized in the text. Now, what does that mean? Did they have a storage of candles? Everybody's looking at me, they want the answer. I didn't know either, but I had to think about this for a little bit. Is it possible, now think with me, is it possible that all of Egypt, including Goshen, fell under darkness? But the light in the dwelling is a reference to the presence of the Lord. Now here's why I think it is. When they leave Egypt, what guides them by night? Pillar of light. What fills the tabernacle at, in the end of Exodus 34 when the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God? Light. It shines so brightly they could not look at it. Is it possible that God was showing his presence with his people in such a unique way that where they were gathered, there was the glory of the Lord with them. I think that's very possible. That, that's phenomenal. The Egyptians are stuck in their black of blackness. They can't move. They don't know what's going on there, but I'm sure they heard the stories later. What, you guys had light? Yeah, it was the Lord himself gave us his glory. I don't know. I, I, I don't know all that took place there, but that, that's remarkable. And, and then to think that someday, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelations, at the end, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself, will be the sun to us. We will no longer need the sun. He himself will provide light for eternity for us. The presence of the Lord is with us, so we do not need the what? The sun. Is this possibly not a revelation to what God is going to continue to do for his people for all of eternity? And, and, and just think about a little application here. This is really fun to go with this. The world lives in spiritual darkness, don't they? They're trapped in it. They're so afraid. They're consumed with fear and jealousies and hatreds and all the things that go on in this world. But you and I do not have to live that way. We have the light of God. We know our days are ordained. No one can take them from us. We, we don't have to be afraid of viruses and death. We should not fear death. We live in the presence of God. In fact, let me say this. The presence of God lives within us. And the light of God flows through us. So I think that's remarkable. I've never seen that before. I never thought through that. I, th I thought, well, maybe God just put light, he made a blanket and there's dark on this side. I, I think it's God's glory. Look at 24 through 26, I gotta finish. The Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. 
Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifice and burn offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know what we will serve, what we shall, how we shall serve the Lord. At some point, Pharaoh summons Moses. <laughs> so Moses makes his way through the dark to this palace. And here's this, another weak, prideful concession. This time he says, uh, okay, I'm going to let you go. You can take your little ones, but your flocks stay. And I think about this. Egypt has no more livestock, and, and they may lose the people, but this is a valuable co- commodity. I'm not going to lose this. He, I mean, he's falling apart. Things, I mean, the regime is going down, and he's trying to hold on to things. And so, yeah, you can go, but you leave your livestock because we're going to need them. But again, Moses, I love Moses, listen to him. He believes the word of God. There is no compromise. Brothers and sisters, are we like Moses? When God says something, we don't compromise. No, no, that's not gonna happen. Everything belongs to the Lord. We worship the Lord with every, this is what he's saying. We worship the Lord with everything. We worship him with our spouses, our children, our livestock, our belongings. All will go with us because we don't know what the Lord will ask of us when we come to worship him. Is that not still true today? I've met too many people worshiping God as their spouses were passing away from this life to another. Or someone going through something difficult, worshiping God. God, he's yours, or she's yours. I don't want you to take them, but they belong to you, and I, I honor you. are perfect in all they do. I've been with people who speak that way at the death of their loved ones. God wants it all. And that's what Moses does. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. This anger, this uncontrollable rage is the result of a hard heart and Pharaoh continues his unwillingness to acknowledge the Hebrew God as almighty. Verse 28, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again for in the day you see my face you shall die. This verse has to be Interpreted as God's divine restraint on Moses, isn't it? I mean, excuse me, God's divine restraint on Pharaoh. Left to himself, Pharaoh probably would have killed Moses right there. He'd had it with him. But God was not going to let that happen. God had plans for Moses. He was going to lead this nation all the way to the border of the promised land. And so Pharaoh could not kill him, but he would have liked to. Remember, this conversation is also taking place in pitch darkness, unless there's light shining from Moses. And these threats of an overwhelmed, fallen ruler, in a way, are denying, he's denying that he is powerless to do anything about this. Look at verse 29, when Moses said, you are right. I shall never see your face again. Now, that's a problem with chapter 11, isn't there? There are a lot of people who say, well, well, apparently he comes back and 
states this last plague of death on the firstborn. What, how does that happen? And, and here's just simply what I think. I think before Moses leaves, standing before him in the darkness possibly, Moses says, here's what's coming. And I think chapter 11 is stated in chapter 10, verse 29, and he says, this is what's coming. Death of your firstborn. So finally, as we just wrap this up, this is the last quick thought here. Live in darkness and die. Turn to Jesus and live. I think it's so clear through these messages. Does anyone in here want to have a hard heart to God? I think all of us say, no, I don't want my heart to be hardened. So where is the sin? I mean, we know that sin is connected to the hardness of our heart. So, so we, do we need to repent of it? And, and this is the message of the Bible, right? Jesus came preaching and teaching. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's an urgency to deal with sin. When Simon the magician was wanting the Holy Spirit and the apostles rebuke him. They say to them, therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if, now listen to this, if possible, the intentions of your heart may be forgiven you. I love that phrase. The, the, the Pharisees, I mean, excuse me, the apostles did not know if God was gonna forgive him. But you need to repent. You, you, you won't know. And so, so that will show that there's a forgiveness coming. If you really repent, it's the key. It shows that faith has been granted. John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so the darkness will not overtake you. And then he says this phrase, he who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. So there's blindness here, and we can see where it can take you. And finally, if you're struggling with something, which we all should be, <laughs> there all should be something in our lives that we should talk to the Lord about here. John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we don't have to live in darkness. And, and so it's clear, and I'll just finish with a statement, God always judges sin. And in his children, he disciplines sin. Do you understand that? He judges the unrighteous, and he disciplines the righteous. And we are only righteous because of Christ's salvation. And he will deal with it. It's against his very nature not to let sin go unpunished. And so we will see many of these plagues someday poured upon the earth as he judges and we'll see it in Mark 13. As we get to Mark 13, we're going to start to understand what he's talking about. What's behind these rumors of wars and, and all of this, all of it discourse, all of this coming, the coming day. We're going to start to understand what he's talking about and who he's talking about and who he's talking to. Because he always, always judges sin. And we'll look at that on Sunday. Hey, we got a great God, isn't Are you glad he saved you? <laughs> I would be scared to death if I had to go against the God who can create darkness. Amen? Father, thank you for your love for us. It's, it's beyond measure. We, we do not deserve it. You're a good God to us, Lord. But we know that you are a holy God. And you must deal with sin. And so, Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son 
And so our sin was dealt with on him. All of it laid on him. He became sin for us. And the result was we gained his righteousness. It's unfair. It makes no human sense. But that was your plan, God, because we were destitute. We were like Egypt, just bankrupt, desolated. And you came, and you saved us, and you made us new, and made us a new creature. You took away the old, and you dressed us in your son's righteousness so we could stand in your presence forever. So God, help us deal with sin in our lives. It cost your son's death. It's connected to darkness. Lord, may we live in the light that you saved us into. Lord, we thank you for this time. Bless these folks, Lord. Please protect our church, Lord. Help us grow in a deeper and deeper love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.